Welcome to the podcast, Let the Prophets Speak. Today, we are going to begin together our study of the book of Job, the book Sefer Eov. And today will just be an introduction to Eov. And after today's podcast, we'll actually start to study the text itself. This is a big departure from the last several months where we've been studying together the book of Kings, that's one Kings and two Kings, Malachim Aleph and Malachim Bet, in which that book was primarily a narrative, a story of, the, of, of a historical narrative of the kings of Israel and Judah, the establishment of the kingdom and the end. Um, and typically in the Nevi'im Rishonim, in the early prophets, we read narratives like that. Eov is from the Ketuvim, is from the writings, not from the book, from the section of Tanakh called uh, Nevi'im. This is Ketuvim. And Eov is uh, one of the wisdom books. Uh, it's a book primarily to teach us wisdom and not really pri- primarily to teach us history and stories. Of course, Eov contains a story. And... Um, but the primary thing is to teach us wisdom, similar to the books of Tehillim, Psalms, and Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, and, and Mishle, Proverbs, etc., which we're going to hopefully study together as well over the upcoming months and years as we work our way through the writings of Tanakh. Eov is, uh, there's a lot of things that should be discussed in introduction. The first, the question is, when was the book of Eov written? As we know traditionally in Chazal, the Talmud has numerous opinions as to when Eov was written. Um, so the Talmud couldn't quite exactly pin down exactly when the book of Eov was written. From a scholarly perspective, most understand the book of Eov to be a uh, parable the, meaning the, the story part of Eov. As actually, let me stop for a second and tell you a little bit about how the book is constructed. The book is a story, the story of Eov's life, which is really the first two chapters and the last bit at the end of the last chapter, 42. So just a little bit in the beginning and a little bit at the end where it talks about Eov's life. And then the bulk of it in the middle is the, is the discussion between Eov and his friends, and eventually the, the, the discussion with a capital D from God himself to Eov, describing the nature and the reason, or the lack of reason, for the suffering of the innocent, and to a little bit less extent, but also an important extent, why sometimes evil prospers. That's how the book is constructed. And the, the way it's written is very different from those two parts. The narrative portion is, is in basic, uh, you know, easy-to-read uh, regular Hebrew, whereas the wisdom part is written in an extremely difficult, uh, poetic manner. Uh, the way the wisdom books are written, often using words that are, are, are difficult to translate because they don't appear either often or sometimes, in some cases, no other place in Tanakh. But... Um, We'll work our way through these words and their translations. A lot of those words in the more difficult, more poetic parts of the book come from Aramaic or from Arabic, other Semitic languages, 
and they're used in various forms to add to the poetry and the the beauty, but sometimes the very dark beauty and sometimes very um, um, uh, uh, Im imaginative descriptions of different things as we will go through the book. Based on, on, on this, most assume that the book was the story of Eov was a well-known story uh, throughout the um, uh, the the Levant throughout this the, t the time period probably a story that goes back for thousands of years uh, and the the parable of a man who was very wealthy who had everything going for him and then tragically lost it all but remained faithful to God throughout throughout his travails and then in the end uh, had his his wealth restored is a parable and a story that probably was told throughout many of the different cultures of of the region over thousands of years and it made it you know and there whether or not Eov himself was an actual person is actually debated in the Talmud some think he wasn't an actual person some think he was when did he live who knows there probably was once a person named Eov uh, mostly because we know he's mentioned by Yechezkel by Ezekiel as a known person probably did exist, but that's not even the point. And as we read the story, we'll see the point. It really doesn't matter who he was and when he lived. The story is a timeless story, one that is equally as relevant today in 2024 as it was, you know, 3,000 years ago and so on. In terms of the time that it was written, uh, uh, scholars mostly agree that based on the style and probably written in near the end of the First Temple period, uh, time in which people would have been grappling with these um, difficulties, the suffering, the destruction of the temple, probably written somewhere in that time period. But um, we'll, we'll leave, since we, you know, the, the, the scholars can, have debated this for, for many centuries and will probably continue to do so uh, in terms of the time that this book was written, whether or not it was written as two books, Many actually claim that it might have been written to be performed as a, as a play. Um, and there's a lot about the book that gives you the sense that this probably was written to be performed as a play. Now, this book deals with really with the issue of theodicy, which is the question of describing why God does what he does, even though it often does not seem like something that we would consider just from our human perspective which really deals most directly here with the question of why good people suffer. Why do bad things happen to good people? This is the central question, and then its corollary is why do good things happen to bad people? In other words, I think I'm a good person. I think I deserve this good job. I think I deserve health. I think I deserve happiness. I think I deserve all the things that people think they deserve. I don't think I did anything wrong, right? But nonetheless, I suffer. And then when I look at others, we see horrific suffering that has occurred over the ages under so many different contexts. And why? Why does that happen? And on the flip side, why sometimes do we see that evil prospers? People can be dishonest, people can oppress others, and nonetheless prosper and seem to do just fine. This is the central question of theodicy. And this book addresses that issue in a very powerful way. 
Let's review for a moment the kinds of things that people over time, and now I'm going to start with religious people, people who believe in God, and therefore assume that if God created the world, or at least want to assume that God created a world that is just, right? And that there is punishment for evil and there is reward for good in some shape or form. And this is central to almost every religion, certainly almost every monotheistic religion. This is the central idea that, um, that there is justice, you know, there's reward for good, there's punishment for evil. So if that's the case, how have people tried to deal with these questions within a religious framework? And we will get soon to irreligious frameworks as well. One approach is, is, the, um, is the idea that maybe there isn't just one God. Maybe there is two forces. Maybe there's a good force and an evil force. I'm not really familiar with Zoroastrian theology. However, uh, I am based on my very limited reading, and if I'm mistaken about this, then feel free to correct me, that there's a fundamental belief in Zoroastrian religion, and also in many other early Middle Eastern religions, that there's, there's a force of good and a force of bad. There's a, some kind of cosmic war between good and evil, and, and sometimes the evil cosmic force uh, overpowers the, bad, the good one, so that when evil happens, the suffering is happening not because of God, but because of the other God. Um, this is w- with the little g, who's the evil one, who sometimes overpowers and causes bad things to happen. And that evil God will reward those people who are bad. So this is reflected in some monotheistic religions, which looks upon Satan, who we will discuss uh, at length in this book of Eov, because the figure of Satan occurs in Eov, and we will read about him and get a sense for where Satan falls in classic Jewish theology. But in some religion, in some forms of Christianity, and again, I'm not an expert in Christianity either, but based on what I've read, Christ- many parts of Christianity look at Satan as an as an as a fallen angel who. Um, who, is, who was given the ability to act independently in an evil way and bring about evil. So this is one approach to theodicy. And that is, is that God isn't completely in control. At least the good God isn't completely in control. But there's another power. There's an evil power. So that's one way of looking at it. Um, a second way is, 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 is to think that maybe good people suffer, well, by the way, let me just go back to the first one. There are fundamental flaws in that, in that understanding. This is actually just a deep-seated problem that strikes us in our hearts. If that is how it works, that's fundamentally unfair. You know, why should evil be allowed to exist at all? Why should we be in a world where injustice can take place just because there's an unjust Satan or an unjust evil God, so to speak, who can do bad things? It just doesn't... It answers the question of why it happens, but it's not a very uh, um, nice way to think. It doesn't really feel, make us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, knowing that there's this evil, uh, this evil force out there that can cause such terrible havoc. A second approach is the approach that maybe all of us are evil to begin with. The idea that we were all born in sin 
especially often coming from traditions which view the uh, act of sexual intercourse as something um, deeply flawed and evil, you know, that, that, it's the, that the lust in, uh, involved in sexual relations is something bad. So all of us are somehow born in something bad. This this idea, therefore, would would claim that we all need to be somehow redeemed. We need to purify ourselves. And somehow we, as human beings, have this... We somehow deserve to be punished. So, so in, in this kind of theology, one would think, well, I suffer because we're born to suffer, right? Uh, we're born to suffer. We need to somehow redeem ourselves from this suffering. We need to somehow work past this. We have to earn the right to have a, uh, a good life, to have pleasures in life. Uh, this idea finds its expression in the Christian idea of original sin. Uh, and it has, There are some undercurrents of this found scattered throughout Jewish theology as well. Although the idea of original sin, the idea that somehow because Adam and Eve, uh, you know, sinned all the way back in the beginning. Somehow, human beings are are inevitably tainted from the start. Um, classical Judaism, of course, rejects this idea categorically. However, the the undercurrents of this idea do find their way throughout, uh, strung out here and there throughout Jewish theology as well. So this would explain then why bad people, why good people suffer now. There's a few problems with this as well, of course. Number one, well, it still doesn't explain why bad people can, can, have, can have a good life, right, <laughs> or have reward. And also, it, there's fundamentally something extremely disconcerting, extremely bothersome about thinking that an innocent child who is born having done nothing wrong is automatically tainted from the start. It just somehow is a very disagreeable idea. But it is an idea which is thrown in uh, to try to explain the the problem of theodicy. (coughs) Now, of course, those are so far two ideas. Remember, we mentioned one is the duality, the the existence of evil powers that somehow oppose God. And, of course, there's different ways of explaining that. The second one being the fact that people are fundamentally flawed from the start. A third approach is the idea of reincarnation, which in some religions and in some forms of, of uh, Judaism, the idea of reincarnation, especially in the Kabbalistic sources, the belief uh, pops up a lot. And somehow the idea of reincarnation is used to explain both of these. Well, maybe the reason why this bad person is getting rewarded is because in his previous life he did something good. Or more often, the reason why this innocent person is getting punished is because in a previous life, he did something bad. So he came back down into this new life to get punished. Of course, the idea of Gilgal, as it's known in Hebrew, the idea of reincarnation, is something which, um, which can explain, on a certain level at least, why good people, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. However, it's also very disconcerting. It's also very bothersome because, um, again, you know, just the a whole idea of I'm suffering for something that I never did, you know. Um, it's not something that I'm even conscious of. The, the point of suffering is to teach, uh, assuming that it's to teach us a lesson and encourage us to be better. How am I supposed to learn this lesson if, if I don't even know what I did wrong because I was a different person? 
So, so the, the concept has, has a lot of flaws, and it's not worth it here to go into them. They're pretty self-explanatory and obvious, which is why many uh, have rejected this concept. But it is in the list of attempts to explain theodicy, it deserves its place on the list of attempts and um, with its problems, just like we mentioned, the first two have their problems. <coughs> Another way, <coughs> um, which, is, which finds expression in many places within uh, Jewish theology, is, is the, um, using the concept of olam haba, the concept of a world to come. Whether the world to come is referring to um, the place where our souls go after death, or whether world to come refers to the uh, you know the time in the future, the time after the Messiah, the Messiah, the term is used interchangeably. Sometimes it means one, sometimes the other. However, in this sense, it's the same. It doesn't matter which sense you're using it in, because um, the world to come will be a place in which those of us who were good in this world, whether that means before death or before the arrival of the Messiah, right? Um, uh, those of us who were good will get rewarded, and those of us who were bad will get punished. And this also can then, this, this concept is a very convenient concept, because then if one is getting punished in this world, right, uh, one can say, well, you, you're getting the punishments now in order to save you from worse punishments later. So the punishments kind of cleanse you now so that later when the world to come happens, then you'll get all of a sudden rewarded, right? <coughs> um, <coughs> or if you're getting rewarded now, why does the evil guy get rewarded even though he's evil? Well, because he did a few good things, so let him get rewarded because later he's going to get punished. And later he won't have any reward left because he'll have used it all up in this world. So it's a, it's a very convenient concept. And it, it definitely finds its place within Jewish theology, the idea of olam haba. But it also still leaves us with some difficulty. I mean, if first of all, one has to have faith in the idea that there is such a thing as a world to come. Um, you know, and and, and that's uh, uh, that's uh, has to be accepted on faith. There is no evidence to its existence there's no i can't point to you scientific evidence that it that that such a thing exists however it's it's something that you have to accept upon as faith which can be extremely difficult when one is confronted with terrible suffering um especially while watching someone else who is evil who um, who is uh, enjoying um you know all the pleasures of this world the um so that, that's one of the primary difficulties. In other words, it's very difficult to comfort somebody with that idea, although it does conveniently answer almost any one of these questions, right? So it is another approach that, that, that many religions, including Judaism, uses in order to explain theodicy. The, uh, you know, but that difficulty, the difficulty that it has to be accepted on faith, there is no clear evidence. We don't see it makes it very, very hard for a human being to feel. I mean, you, you have to have deep, deep faith in this concept of olam haba, especially when the evil is incredibly awful. Like imagine, you know, sometimes it can be used to explain, okay, I lost a job or I got sick or something like that. But when we see terrible, terrible suffering in someone who's purely innocent, it gets more and more difficult to use that explanation. 
a young child who's born with a debilitating, awful disease and just living in suffering all the time. The concept of Olam Haba, it's very, very hard to explain, but especially when looked at in context of something truly horrific and horrible, like, for example, the Holocaust. It's very hard to use the concept of Olam Haba to explain the incredible suffering that was inflicted upon so many millions of absolutely innocent people, in many cases, absolutely righteous and beautiful people to suffer that much. It becomes, you can conveniently say it, but deep down, deep-rooted, there's still, it just doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it. Why does God have to go through, you still end up with the question, why does God have to inflict so much suffering why? Just because later on, they're, I mean, it just, why not just leave out the suffering and give them the greatness later on? And of course, there's answers to this back and forth. But, you know, so, so it helps on some levels, but it also creates almost as many questions as it solves. Another way of understanding it is that sometimes suffering is given to a, 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 a person, not because of a, something that he or she did wrong, not as a punishment, but as a way to purify their souls, to train them, to bring them to a higher spiritual level. We do know that when we go through suffering in this world, we often walk out the other end a better person. Many of us have learned lessons. We went through suffering, we learned lessons. We learned what it feels like to feel pain so that we are become more compassionate towards others that are in pain. We learn what it feels like to, to, to be without, to be without the, our necessities of life. So that when we walk out the other end, when we see other people going through that, we're much more likely to step in and help them. We learn, you know, uh, what, what it feels like to be the victim of dishonesty, which encourages us to never treat other people in that way. So suffering is an opportunity for us to learn. And now while this helps us to the extent and to some degree might answer a little bit the question of theodicy, but how many of you who have went through suffering in your life and then walked out the other end a better person, if you could go into a time machine, would you put yourself through that suffering again in order to learn that lesson? I'd venture to guess that the vast majority of people listening to this podcast and the vast majority of the people in this world would say, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I'd be, uh, yes, I am a better person because I suffered, but no, I'd rather not have gone through that at all. It was terrible. So, again, it helps a little, but leaves more questions than answers. Another um, a way of looking at it is sometimes one person may suffer to teach other people a lesson. You know, there might be suffering on one side of the world in order to teach us how we should act and live more responsibly. Now, this one might sound good if you are watching another community um, die in a flood, for example, and then you learn the lesson, okay, so I learned I better build better dikes and better, um, um, better levees in order to protect us from, from flooding, and I better be more prepared for emergencies. Well, that's a good lesson to learn, and it might help me in my life, but it certainly didn't help those people who died in the flood, and certainly doesn't help them. So while this idea also gets thrown out and, and, and bandied about during the discussions of theodicy, it still leaves some significant flaws in the explanation. Another way of understanding it is the understanding 
not so much to to uh, mention the idea of of olam haba, right? Of of a, a time to come, of the, the world of the future, the, the life after death, or life or the world after the Messiah, or something like that. But rather, just some cosmic sense of justice that we can't see and we can't feel. That yes, it God is just. God does uh, 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 reward good deeds and punish bad deeds. However, the, the justice of it, the way it's rewarded, is not something we can understand or ever see or ever feel. This is, there's, there's a cosmic sense of justice that we just don't know. It exists, but we don't know or we don't understand it or we don't feel it. Now, this one sounds good, but it still leaves us wanting when we go through suffering. All of the things that I've mentioned until now all assume that God exists and that God fundamentally is just, that the creator of the world fundamentally is just and there is such a thing as justice. The next level is to say, maybe there is a God, but he isn't just. In other words, that throws it all out the window. Yes, God created the world, but God either doesn't care or he's just playing games or um, he doesn't pay any attention or any combination of all of the above. Um, This kind of creator raises a significant question. Um, Maimonides emphasizes why it's important to believe or why... that aspect of our belief in Judaism, the fact that we believe that there is a creator who created the world is important. And Maimonides emphasizes the reason why it's important is because if there's a creator, then he did it for a reason. There's a purpose. There's a purpose to all of this. Now, if God's purpose was to play games and make people suffer, that's true or, or be indifferent to people's suffering. And not just people, but any creature suffering. That is a very... Um, very painful concept to, to try to imagine and wrap our heads around, you know. And that's not something that we are even willing to accept in the bottom of our soul. The fundamental idea, in, in, you know, it's expressed in Judaism in many ways and in most religions is that God created the world to be good, to be kind. That's something that we can handle. That's something we can sink our teeth into. That's something we can accept and go to sleep at night thinking and, and imagining. But the thought that there is a God, but God did it because he wanted to be mean or because he wanted to not care or because he didn't care or because he was just playing around games and then other people suffer, especially innocent children, and etc. That's a very painful thought. But it is a, another way to explain theodicy. And then, of course, there's the idea that maybe there is no creator. Maybe there is no God. <clears throat> maybe... The world just is, and this is the way it is. <coughs> there is no God, there is no creator, and the world just is, and they're suffering because that's how the world works. Now, in the book of Eov, we are going to hear pretty much all of those explanations are going to be bandied about as Eov struggles to understand the suffering to which he has been subjected. All of these ideas are going to be bandied about and considered both by Eov's friends and by Eov himself. We are going to go through all of these discussions and we are going to follow these these ideas to their logical conclusions. 
Um, and we're going, the idea that God, uh, you know, um, is just, but nonetheless, such suffering occurs, is the fundamental underlying idea that the Eov and his friends are struggling with as they work their way to, through trying to understand Eov's suffering and thus the suffering of any righteous person and to a lesser degree, but also significantly discussed why sometimes evil people um, uh, do not suffer. In fact, they seem to be getting rewarded. And what we're going to find is that in this book, all of these understandings, all of these ways of explaining theodicy are going to be exposed for their uselessness and for their not, you know, all. remember I pointed out as we went through, each one has flaws. Well, we're going to see these flaws. We're going to see the Band-Aid literally ripped off in the most painful way from all of these Band-Aids, you know, that, are, that seem to try to patch up the idea of the Odyssey and explain them in one of the ways that we just described. The one thing that Eov will not consider and refuses to consider is the idea, and this we will learn as we go through, he will refuse to consider the idea that there is no creator and that this is all just random. That is the fundamental idea of faith that we are going to learn from this book. Because one can easily come up with, when one lives through or experiences the kind of suffering that Eov suffered, and when we look at our own lives and the suffering that we've been through ourselves, and then when we look at other people and uh, throughout the generations, throughout history that have suffered things that are unimaginably worse than what we ourselves have suffered, one conclusion that many people can make and do make is that it's random. There is no God. Or that God exists, but he doesn't care. Or that God exists, but he's cruel. Or that God exists, but there's other forces out there. All of those are the things that are unacceptable to the Torah, and Eov will refuse to accept any of those. He, he will never come up with a good explanation for why these things happen, but he will entertain all of these possibilities, and Eov's friends will entertain all these possibilities. And we'll see how some of these explanations will, will not just be wrong, but will be cruel when one is trying to understand suffering. And the key underlying message of this all, and this reminds me of something else I really wanted to say, is that whenever someone studies Eov or reads Eov, and including myself as a human being, I must admit my flaw up front. <coughs> we all see ourselves in Eov. Even though, of course, thank God, none of us have suffered, or maybe some, some of us, but hopefully hardly any of us have suffered the awful, awful, unimaginable suffering that we're going to describe that Eov has went, has went through. But we all have gone through things in our lives, and, and, um, and we all see in this book the way that we understood the suffering of our lives, the way that we incorporated into our lives, the way that we grew or didn't grow from them, we see it in this book and we interpret it in this way. So I must admit that I'm also guilty of the same. I also see in Eov the kinds of things. But that's, how, that's true about any, any literature, any art, anything we study, especially when we study the books of Tanakh. We see ourselves in it. And the, the, end, the lesson of it all is, is that despite everything, 
Eov still held on to the, the idea that there is a God, that there is justice, and that, um, and that, uh, and that he, he just doesn't understand. Um, but we're going to learn so, so much, so much about, about, about how the world works, how we can deal with um, suffering. We learned so much. It's just, it's, it's, in, it's just throughout this book, there's going to be so much wisdom, so many things we're going to learn about ourselves, about the world around us, about how to be more compassionate, about how to be better people, um, and about how, despite everything, maintaining faith, in the idea, maintaining the idea that there is purpose to this world, that it is not random, is so important to helping us get through this. And I, I must mention, uh, you know, the the book of, of Viktor Frankl, um, who the psychiatrist who who survived the Holocaust, and his book. Man's Search for Meaning, in which he identified the way he got through suffering and the way people that survived through suffering that it's so awful, so unimaginably awful, just by having a purpose, by knowing there is meaning. This is fundamentally the message of this book. And if as you study it together with me, I'm sure all of you will see things here that I don't see. We will all see it in a different way. It will be painful in many ways, but in many ways we will see the struggles that we go through every single day in every single page, every verse. What we'll, The arguments, the mental arguments that bounce around our own minds, we'll see those arguments playing out as we read through this book. This then is my introduction to the Sefer Eov. I'm looking forward to studying it with you. It's going to be a little bit of a slow haul because each time I, we get to a new chapter, it, it takes me time to prepare. It takes me time to think how to um, teach. But uh, I, I really look forward to this challenge, and I hope that I step up to the task of bringing out the incredible wisdom and the incredible emotional power that the Book of Eov has to contribute to our lives and thank you so much for studying with me in general, and I hope everyone has a wonderful, wonderful day and that we have a wonderful time together studying the Book of Eov.